I, I've got your opinion. Um, I've got a opinion, a question, to ask your opinion. Jen Robison, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good morning. So you are going to be the third person we've had so far from Echo Bind. So we're really excited. We love Echo Bind here. And you are the director of engineering. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your role and what you do. Great. Yeah. It's been really fun as a team to join you guys. My current role is director of engineering here at Echo Bind. I bring quite a number of years. I hate to age myself. It makes me sound older than I am, but I have spent, you know, more than 15 years in tech. I actually started my career as an administrative assistant. Uh, working at Intel and then working into a technical role. So I started, you know, kind of in a business analyst and kind of self-taught myself um, HTML with a lot of the WYSIWYG editors and then started delving into JavaScript. And I, I did my associate's degree in computer information systems. And then I really got into kind of the .NET world. So I did VB and then C Sharp, kind of delve into JavaScript frameworks from there, starting with Angular. And then a few years ago, I made the switch over to mobile and uh, really got really interested in React Native, which has been really fun. Wow, that is a killer list of technologies and things you have worked on. That's, that's really incredible. So how did it feel going from something like Angular to React Native? Because that's a switch not only from web to mobile, but also from like Angular to React. So it was like, I imagine that must be like a huge transition. It's kind of funny because most, I think, React Native developers start with React as a web framework, and I actually completely skipped that step. But I felt like it was pretty natural. You know, once you've done one JavaScript framework, you know, there's a lot of similarities. There's some differences. Angular was pretty opinionated with certain aspects. And then when you get into the mobile side, you know, you have different concerns that you have to deal with. I think some of the biggest learnings and challenges for me were getting away from more of that global style sheet type mentality and figuring out how do we share our styles and not have a lot of repetition going in the mobile side. You know, it wasn't as simple as, oh, I have my style sheet and all my buttons look like this. It's getting easier and easier with theming and some of the libraries out there. But when I first started, it was much different and when you get into like sizing and heights and it was like wait this is a lot different that's cool and i'm curious just as someone who's done so much javascript if you've looked at view or svelte at all i have actually never used those frameworks i did some knockout js i've just scratched the surface a little bit of backbone which i don't ever really want to repeat <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think some of the other frameworks. It's been a, a while. Aurelia, I think, was one way back. Yeah, there's definitely a lot that now are kind of passe, but um, Vue and Svelte are actually still growing, and I think getting more interesting. Right, they are definitely. Which is why I think they're worth at least, you know, kind of being aware of. Bringing it back to Echobind, how did you first hear about Echobind? It's kind of a funny story for me. I was very much like kind of peripherally looking for a more remote opportunity. And I was approached, you know, via LinkedIn from a recruiter. 
it was very interesting to me because Echobine has a niche in healthcare and something else about my career and my past is I'm actually also a first responder. I've been a volunteer firefighter. And so I have a huge passion in the healthcare industry. So for me to find a job that's remote, they love working in healthcare and being able to blend those passions was super interesting to me. And from the very first conversation I had with our CEO, Michael, just felt like I was at home, to be honest. Then later found out that I had actually kind of brushed circles with our CTO, Chris, who you guys have had on the show. I had spoke at Chain React that year. And so through my interview process, they were like, oh yeah, we listened to you speak at Chain React. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I hadn't heard of Echobind at the time. And now we joke because there's actually pictures of Chris and I at the same place. (laughs) And we had no idea who each other were at the time. I'm yet to attend any conferences. I've never actually attended like a JavaScript conference at all. And I think like post-COVID conferences are like the best thing ever because no matter where you are in the world, you can watch it. I'm a big fan of them. One of the questions that I did want to ask as um, head of engineering, was that it? Director of engineering. Director, there we go. So fancy. And, and this is something that I always battle with. Anthony says, have you played with Svelte or XYZ or any JavaScript technology? And I feel like in an agency, it's one of the better places to have played with that technology because I'm from a startup where we have to get the job done as well as like, I have team members that say like, have you heard of Dino? And my instant answer is like, yes, but what's the use case? And then they go, Oh, it's really good at these things. I'm, I'm like, but Express is just fine right now. There's no point trying to ship blazing edge technology. But I am a guy that runs his startup in Redwood. So I'm here and there. Yeah, I think we walk a fine line with that too at our agency, right? Because at the end of the day, we're very much like a startup where our goal is to help you ship your product and meet your budget and timeline. So we have to be really aware of those things as well. One of the things I love about Echobind is that we allow our full-time employees to have investment time. So part of our investment time is to be able to spike out some of these technologies. So one of the things like I've been working on recently is getting our React Native builds up on GitHub Actions and playing around with the Expo build services. But that's a perfect opportunity for a lot of our employees to start to explore other technologies, Nest.js, Redwood, like so many different opportunities and things that people can dive into. And then on Fridays, we have team demos where we get a few minutes each to share something we've learned that week, whether it was through our client work or through our investment time. My question is, does Chris Ball always bring the best demos? <laughs> Chris has some pretty awesome demos, but I would say like it's anybody's guess who's going to have an amazing demo, right? Like we have skill sets across the board. Some people are working on mobile. Some people are working in Ruby and like it just depends. And I'm always learning something from our amazing engineers. You also mentioned Expo. I know Chris is always super interested in Expo. How was your experience with that been like? We're definitely starting to get more and more into Expo. You know, when I first started using React Native, Expo was kind of that faux pas where you had to eject almost immediately if you wanted to do anything with camera or 
more on the native side of the mobile application, but their libraries have become so advanced. They have done such a great job with managing those libraries for locations and push notifications and camera. They've just made the developer experience so much better that we're moving more and more back to Expo. We have a React Native TypeScript template that we maintain open source that has been our go-to for our Greenfield applications. And we're starting to convert that over to a bare workflow for Expo. I completely agree with what you're saying about Expo because I learned React Native before learning React. So I went from WordPress, like PHP development, to React Native to React. And when I was just cusping on going from React Native to React, I was like, I don't think I get how React works. Like there's no compiler, it just runs in the browser. Like what? <laughs> and then when I learned React, it was like, oh, I get why all this is happening now and how React Native took so much from React. But I would say React Native have some of the better APIs than React. And I still believe Expo is paving the path for the one true React application. And what I mean by that is you write it once and it works on your mobile devices, your desktop devices, and the web. I believe Expo is making that possible. Yeah, I totally agree. I heard you, I listened to the episode with Mike recently and I heard you guys talk about that. And I know he's been dabbling a little bit in React Native Web, whereas one of the projects I was just recently working with, it's actually an Expo managed project. As much as I thought we would need to eject, we were actually able to maintain it as a managed project. And part of my parting gifts to them was like, hey, let's spike out. What does this look like as a PWA with the same code base? Can we actually use the same exact code and have it be available on the web. I was very pleasantly surprised. It was really my first experience of truly trying that with a fully baked application that had location. So we're talking about, you know, kind of a location tracking application. I simply said Expo start web and bam, I had a PWA. It was honestly amazing. I was like, okay, what does this look like if I were to produce this as a production application. And I did the build web and it gives me my little folder of compiled code. I use NPX serve with that folder and I could run it locally. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I would have no issue. Obviously you're going to have use cases where that's not exactly the experience you want, but it had react navigation with tabs on the bottom and looked exactly the same as I would have in a mobile app natively. It was pretty awesome. I think a lot of the time when an application is literally like a dashboard and then your customer says, yeah, can we have this like web dashboard now as an app? It's like 90% of the same code, 90% of the same graphs, tables, forms. And that's where I think React Native like web and things more native like Windows and Mac OS can really come, but it's still not quite there yet. And I think something like Bison or Redwood could really bring that forward. Also, when you start to do that mobile first design, right? Because a lot of times when we're, hey, let's build this dashboard, we're building it still thinking more in that desktop web space. This actually happened on a client project in the last few where it was like, no, nobody's going to be accessing it on mobile. Like it's only on desktop. And so 
all of our designs were very much desktop friendly. And then the client was like, wait, but I can't view this. It doesn't work on my mobile device. And it was like, well, that wasn't a requirement at the time. So going back to that, like very much mobile first design, right? A lot of times you're not going to use a table like on a dashboard because tables aren't mobile friendly. You just can't see all the data. So then you start to think about them as like card components and those will work really well on a desktop web as well. The whole flip in design thinking, I think will just give better user experience across the board when we start to think more in that space first. One of my favourite things is when we were building our own dashboard, I spent a lot of time, you know, making sure mobile views worked in that. And my business co-founder was like, nobody views it on the mobile. Everybody goes through the desktop. And then three people joined in a row, all did it through mobile. And it was like, you just can't predict the web anymore. And sometimes the most B2B applications people still do it on their mobiles. So it's really crazy. And my second thing, every time one of my team members or me says like, that's a table view, I always go, but it's actually a list view, if you think about it. (laughs) Yeah, so true. Because this is the thing, tables are just so restrictive. And I completely agree. It's like, as soon as you flip it and think a table view is always like a list view, it makes it so much more accessible to all different device sizes. Yeah, I've definitely gone into now a much different thinking when I'm testing any application that we're doing for the web. I don't know if you use responsively, but it is an amazing application to be able to say like across all these device sizes, you know, phone, iOS, small form factor, laptop, etc. I can just see how my application is going to work and split. So even if we have different views on the web of like, it'll be a card here, but it'll be a table there list view it just makes it so much easier to start with that in mind yeah i use a web browser called sizzy i'm pretty sure it's very identical to responsely as like a chrome headless browser in multiple different windows right as the different devices yeah it's come a long way the tools that we have available to us yeah it makes sense because we have such a wide range of devices that our users could potentially be on. And I think the mobile first thinking makes a lot of sense because you think about it, pretty much everyone is going to own a phone, but not everyone's necessarily going to own a laptop or a desktop. So really we're getting more and more to a place where you should just assume the majority of your traffic is going to come from mobile. And that's just kind of like the way it's going to be going forward. So I'd be curious how you think about using frameworks for mobile versus building stuff up yourself. Like you were talking about how, you know, Expo does a lot of stuff for you, but also it won't necessarily fit all of your your use cases. So when you're presenting kind of like with a project, when do you think you need to like roll your own versus use something off the shelf? Kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, when we're exploring new technologies, we try to have a lot of those explorations done ahead of time. And we try and think about like the different use cases having a matrix of like, when would we use different technologies? We try not to on a new project say like, oh, we're going to go try this technology because we think it might work. We try and use something that's already proven. And if we're not sure that we have the right, um, you know, framework to use, we should be including that as part of our 
development process of like, hey, you know, this is a requirement for you. So let us first start out with a spike and really talk through what are your use cases and your requirements and then come back to you with this is our actual development plan. It doesn't make sense for us to try something out without proving it out at least a little bit. For example, you know, recently, uh, you know, using React Native to help us with a project where the SDK we needed to implement for that project was iOS only. And that's because it's using the face mapping, the 3D face mapping portion of the camera. So it's obviously only available on certain iOS devices. It's iOS only, but we still thought we could get the advantages of using React Native with that. So we started that project by doing a one week spike to say, all right, can we bridge this library effectively with React Native before we commit to the client that this is the right path for them? So have you find that bridging native modules has got a lot easier in the last year to two years? Because I think I touched it two years ago when bridging native modules was quite a big deal. And you'd have to get like your Cocoa Pods out and manage it all in Xcode. <laughs> I really didn't experience it previously. I would say the documentation wasn't amazing. So my coworker Alex and I spent that time spiking it out and we had a lot of learnings from that. And we actually have a plan to put together a blog about bridging for React Native. There was just a lot that we were, it was kind of lost in translation for lack of a better word where we were like well this doesn't actually quite work the way it says so let's figure it out you know which is one of the things that i love about engineering and has kept me so interested in this space right and keep things interesting as an engineer is like we're always learning and like trying to figure out how to make things work when they're really not necessarily known for us what are some of the tools that you're in the testing out, spiking out kind of phase now that you still are not really sure if they're going to work yet or not? Every time we try something out, or one of the things that I find super interesting, so one of the things I'm very passionate about is end-to-end -end testing. I've given a few talks in that space for detox over the last couple years. I just think it gives you so much more confidence in your code, but it's been a massive roller coaster, to be honest, over the last few years where every time iOS releases a new OS version or Android rolls something new with their APIs and then React Native does a release, you know, it breaks something within there and you just have to be constantly trying out like, okay, now that Android has made it so that the clear traffic, you know, for network isn't available across localhost, like, okay, now I got to go figure out how to create this network configuration and just piecing together everything and then helping blaze that trail for other developers. So putting out blog articles and giving talks so that others don't have to fight the same battles. What do you think is better? 50 blog posts explaining how to do something or very in-depth documentation saying how to do it? Mm, that is a great question. I think good documentation is going to be better than all of the blog posts, right? Because the blog posts are usually telling us the documentation isn't good and they're based on somebody's understanding. They can be really tricky, right? They can lead you down a lot of rabbit holes. It's like Stack Overflow, right? We can't find what's going on. We go to Stack Overflow and they can lead you astray even 
things that have been thumbsed up a bunch and you're like, yes, this is going to be the answer. And you're like, nope, still doesn't work. <laughs> There's just so many changes in the ecosystem. Yeah, I find the blog posts are sometimes easier to read and more comprehensible because they're more from the user's perspective because it's someone who kind of came out the docs and, and wrote a thing, but they're not necessarily updated the way docs are and they're not in sync with the core development team of whatever the thing is they're actually writing about. So that's where you can get into, into a lot of problems there. Two of my most read blog posts that I've put out, one is around last year when iOS was no longer gonna allow the zip file, which was the common React Native splash screen that we were using in iOS. And so you had to transfer it to Storyboard and React Native wasn't even you know updating it yet in the template. And I wrote a blog post about how to translate your zip file into Storyboard because it just wasn't, as a non-native developer, the documentation from Apple was like terrible. And I was like, ah, you know, figured it out. I was like, all right, I'm going to put a blog post. But now like it still gets hundreds of views every week. And I'm like, wow, that's been over a year. It's included now with React Native. I would think that it's not as relevant anymore. And obviously I haven't updated it, but people still find it useful. And the other one is around enabling Hermes for Android, which just this weekend, React Native 6.4 was released and now Hermes is available for iOS. So when I wrote that blog post, it was still not very common even on Android. And now here we are evolving. And I wonder like how relevant will that continue to be? But people still find those things useful. It's hard to keep all of that current with the different versions. The reason I asked for your opinion is because I think sometimes documentation just is unreadable for me. And it's much easier to read someone's like, opinionated blog piece because like not even in a bad way but some documentation is literally wrote like a scientific paper and that's like chuck it out the window for me but i could read a blog post of someone like talking through it as long as the wheel's not being repeated it's always useful but then there's still a blog post that's like you want this solution download these 10 yarn packages and do this and you'll have your solution I think that's completely valid, right? A lot of times we write blog posts because we experienced such a lack of good documentation that we felt it was going to be helpful. As Anthony was saying, like we write them from the user perspective of like, I'm trying to get this thing completed. So these are the steps I had to follow. Whereas a lot of times the documentation comes from not even necessarily a developer, like writing them, right? Technical writers aren't necessarily the people actually writing them. So they think it makes sense. But if you actually were to step through, you can leave out steps. And sometimes you get too close to the subject matter. Last year, I was working on creating a CLI to help us with our React Native release process. And when I first started having my team help test out the process, I realized I had left out some pretty critical steps because I was so close to the subject that I wasn't thinking about those. They were second nature to me. So to have somebody else go through it, it was like, oh yeah, I need to make sure I include that information for others. Yeah, I find if you either have someone, an editor, read through it and find those mistakes, or you eventually have someone read it after it's published and leave a comment and find those mistakes. And if that doesn't happen, then probably no one read it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. If you're not getting feedback, then it's probably not getting used. <laughs> Somebody's not finding a bug. I think it's so easy to fall into the position where it's like, this is the only way to use this. And everything else is not the real way. 
never use it. I, I really like the projects and such that give you a lot of freedom. Bison is one of them, Redwood, because it very much teaches you the fundamentals. And then it's literally now go build something. We released a client app with Bison just recently, and it was a learning process for me. To be honest, I had been really in the, the mobile space for the last several years. So uh, that was my really first true like React web project. So I got to learn quite a bit through using that. And the Bison template really helped, you know, give some opinions around that. That's awesome. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had worked with Bison at all, because I would imagine you would have at least heard about it as it was created, you know, being involved with Egobind, but you probably like never really poked into it very much until you had to build something with it, right? Yeah, exactly. It was my first time, you know, deploying on Vercel and getting into using Prisma, actually, because all of my GraphQL experience previous to that was using more in just a true Apollo server with Type ORM and SQLize and doing more traditional in that space. So it was really interesting to learn the, the flow with Prisma. And just even in the last couple months, you know, Prisma is like coming leaps and bounds and they have some pretty amazing tools out there to help developers start to understand those pieces. Since you're using Nexus, that's kind of like a GraphQL layer that is different from Redwood because we use Apollo Server. Right. And that's kind of how you have the difference between like the code first versus the SDL first kind of schemas. Mm -hmm. And then you're probably just using like Postgres for like the database. Yeah, we were. Nice. And so what was the, as much as you can kind of talk about like generally what the client project was, like what kind of, like what was it around? Yeah, it was um, in general terms, it was kind of a transactional system. I would consider it similar to say like eBay or Craigslist where you can put an ad for this particular commodity. So you have buyers and sellers are your different roles. And based on your roles, you see different portions of the application. So you can, you know, put up a listing and then people can bid on your item that you have available. So we have everything from reference tables and types to actually the transactional side of it. That's awesome. Yeah, it's good to hear that people are using Bison to build that kind of stuff because that's like, that's a serious app. And we've been talking about these frameworks as if they're something you could build serious apps with. So it's always nice to get a little bit of validation there. And then obviously, it's kind of a newer thing. Like, what are some of the rough spots that you're still running into while, while using it? I would say some of the rough spots were honestly a little bit around the Prisma side. When you start to get into some of the more complex, I've got a long history with SQL Server. I've done everything from crazy stored procedures and some pretty intense reporting. So my brain, the way it works in optimizing queries and things like that can make it challenging. I think sometimes to get down into the context and build the objects of the like the where with the the sub objects, you know, where you're essentially behind the scenes doing joins. I think one of the biggest challenges we had was more in the filtering on the server side. So having you either needed to roll like, you know, an actual SQL query or needing to do it on the client side, which is obviously suboptimal, especially on a mobile device. So 
from what I've seen, that's already making strides for improvement. And I think that they'll get further and further down that path. But I think that's where you have to think about the complexity and think, is this the right solution? And just knowing like, what are the limitations? But we got very, very far before finding some of those cases. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, we were able to like work around it. Yeah, it's one of the things with Prisma is that it usually lets you just drop down to the sequel if you need to. And that's kind of what I like about how they've gone with Migrate is that it literally just spits out a sequel file for you instead of this like long steps.json thing that it used to do. And then had you used something like Chakra before? That was actually my first time using Chakra. It definitely had some good pros to it. And then there were some things where I was like, man, this is really painful when they don't have what I would consider some of the standard components that we would use, say like drop down, multi-select or some like really common user elements they don't include. And so then you have to try and bring in another library or build your own and then you're trying to then match the styling of all of the other chakra elements and I think you end up fighting it a little bit more than I would have liked. It still has a lot of really great uses but we're starting to look at is that the right library for us when it comes to theming. It gets you really far for a lot of basic applications but it might not for some more complex you should look at Tanner Lindsley's libraries. He's got like a whole suite of libraries that are targeted at all these different kind of specific use cases for for things like that, like, you know, selects and, and just more kind of complex because he builds like really data intensive data manipulation type, like data analytic dashboard stuff like charts and all, and all that kind of thing. Nice. His whole philosophy, you know, I should think of this because I've been listening to the episode with him, is his whole philosophy is having like hooks that are just managing your like UI logic and then you can kind of theme on top of it. So that would be able to do probably a lot more of the complicated stuff you want to do and then you could just theme chakra like on top of it is kind of I think what a lot of his ideas are based around. Mm, yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. We've been looking at like BaseWeb, which is from Uber. On the React Native side, we've been starting to move away from, you know, styled systems and emotion to using Shopify's restyle, which starts to get more in those like base components that you then create the variants on top of. So really similar to the chakra idea behind it. And then you can really start to customize from there, like how you want them to function. It's cool. Yeah, I don't do a ton of CSS, so I'm usually kind of out of my element in these conversations. <laughs> <laughs> I love CSS, but what I love most about it is when something just flicks in my head going, this dashboard layout that I thought was cool for three weeks is no longer cool and needs refactoring into something cooler. Yeah. <laughs> I remember before I got into React Native, you know, I was heavy into SAS and less just thinking about how far CSS had come at that point. And now, you know, even further with a lot of these really awesome libraries, Tailwind and some of these other frameworks for styling that really just make it a lot easier for folks. I was going to say my favorite library right now is twin.macro for Tailwind. Oh, yeah. It's super complex to explain to people, but it's basically Tailwind in CSS. Yep. We actually have a client who chose that over Tailwind. They were like trying to just decide which was the best path and they ended up going down that path. I'm super excited to kind of see how that plays out. 
My final question, what technologies do you feel have fundamentally changed EchoBind? Not necessarily developer technologies, I mean like in general, like a cabana board or like whatever. I think in general, just the JavaScript frameworks have come so far. So I think about the history of EchoBind and they really kind of started in the Elixir space. And we had Elixir and then kind of like Ruby. And now I look at our business and the majority of the asks are really in that React Native mobile space. The ability to get to like what we were talking about before, which is kind of that one set of code for like all of the platforms, people are just going to be able to get more bang for their buck and be able to ship to all of their users, whether that's Mac OS and Windows, like it's pretty amazing what React Native is enabling from one code base. Yeah, so here's a question. Should there be a Bison-like template for React Native or should there be a React Native side for Bison? I mean, we kind of already have, honestly, the React Native template that's very kind of opinionated, similar to Bison. Is it open sourced? It is, yeah. What is it? It's just literally under our EchoBind GitHub and it's called React Native Template. It includes a lot of the tools that can help get you going. And as I mentioned earlier, we're now in the process of trying to convert that to an Expo Bear workflow. So let's switch out the libraries to start to enable different pieces. But it includes things like the Apollo client. It already has the detox configuration set up for you for end-to-end testing, which is one of the most challenging things, I think, for people to start to set up. It's already got testing in place place. We've got in that one, we're actually in the process of updating it to use Shopify Restyle from Emotion and Styled System. So it's got a lot of the the pieces in there that get you going really quickly in a React Native app. Yeah, this looks killer. I'm definitely gonna look into this. This looks like exactly what I wanted. (laughs) I know we need to come up with a fancy name for it like Bison has. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I just gotta pick one word that's generic and isn't taken yet. I know. So uh, taking ideas now, (laughs) we're going to rebrand this. Cool, cool. I guess my very final question, which is the better navigation system for React Native? From my experience, we had a much better experience with React Navigation. Previous to coming to EchoBind, I had a lot of experience using the Wix library. I think once I really got into React Navigation, I appreciated it a lot more and it's come a lot further with a lot of its customization, you know, V5 and what have you have really opened up a lot of opportunity to do different things. I think there's such misconceptions for people when they're thinking about navigation. They think about navigation much like they think about it in the web and they don't understand the difference in like stacks and the tabs and how things work in that space. They think about it very much like a web browser where I was on page one and I went to page two and then three. So if I click on this other tab, like it should go to this space that I expected, but they're very different stacks. So that doesn't necessarily work that way. When I last did React Native, the Wix one was on top. (laughs) I think React Navigation just added native components, like native navigation, I think. Uh-huh. Because before then it was all JavaScript. Correct. When Wix had partial native, partial JavaScript. I think that was it. 
Yeah, I agree. And that's where we were before I came to Echobind, the product I was working on, the Wix library had a lot more features that we needed at the time. But now I think they're very, very, very close. And it's really, I think, a personal opinion. And it really just becomes what are you familiar with? And what are you used to using? That's it from me. Where can our listeners find you? I'm on Twitter. I'm Code Jen. I love to take that username uh, with all the code generators that are out there. And I'm CMEJET on GitHub. Great. I know you guys are hiring as well. So something else to throw out there, right? Yes, please. We are actively seeking front end React and React Native full stack devs. So if you want to join a really fun team, definitely look us up. Thank you for your time. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah.